What's your dream? What's your goal? What's your motivation? What's important to you? What's your passion? What can you do to change the world? This is What's Involved. Conversations with thought leaders and change makers from around the world. Hear stories of hope and inspiration to help motivate people like you to live your life, find your passion, and live your dream. Together, we can all bring positive change to our world. Now, here's your host, David Watts. Once again, it is What's Involved, my special guest, and he's face-to-face. I can't believe this. Uh, So long, I have not uh, been face-to-face, and now I get to go out and meet uh, with a great author. Who am I talking about? Al Fenter. And Al is uh, the author of a book called Taka Taka Bom Bom. Uh, it's a South African war correspondent story. Hello, Al. Welcome. Well, thank you. That's really appreciated, uh, getting me out here. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. And I mean, what a great book. We're going to get into the book. But before, just a little bit of, of Al's history, because um, you were born in South Africa. And, and earlier on, and I don't believe it for a second, you... You said to me that uh, you're in your 84th year. And I was doing some maths and I just, I can't because you don't look it. You look like maybe, you know, a sprightly 65-year-old, maybe. Uh, what you're not telling your readers is that you're actually being paid by me to be a public relations officer. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, before we get into that, Al, tell us a little bit, just a brief overview of, of, of your life because I'm very interested how you started off here in South Africa, um, and, and suddenly, or not suddenly, but as part of the journey, became a war correspondent because, you know, I can't think of anybody who wakes up in the morning and goes, yeah, I'd like to go and visit a war today. Well, so- I'll, I'll come to that, but in the first place, I owe my life, the way I choose the road, uh, to Manus Brothers College, which had... Lots and lots of brothers, teachers, that from Ireland, Scotland, and England. And they imparted to us an enormous amount of the British culture, especially the literature. And as a boarder, uh, I didn't bother so much about learning Latin declensions. Uh, I read. Uh, I was supposed to, which is why I didn't do very well at school at all. But that's the way it is. And uh, I, read, uh, I read omnivorously. I read from top to bottom uh, the simple people and the, and the learned people. And I, By the time I was 14, for example, I was very much intrigued by World War II. And mm. the British had published by then uh, some, some editions of the, the War at Sea by Captain Roskell. And I asked my mom to buy me, I think it's about 10 or 12 volumes now, but in those days, about three or four already, he was progressing. And I said to her, can you buy me one of these books? And I mean, each one was about two inches thick. And I ended up reading about Kwajalein and the Battle of Iwo Jima and the sinking of the Scharnhorst. Uh, I knew an enormous amount about World War II. And, and that intrigued me because these were taking places in areas where I, I could only read about, and, that it, and I wanted to go and see for myself. That was my intention. And, uh, of course, I had, to stay, I had to finish at school. And the first thing I did when I did finish at school was join the Navy immediately. I'd uh-huh. been a month out. So going from a religious environment... Uh, to the Navy. Where I, to the Navy, straight in. And I stayed three years, and, and, and it was a peacetime Navy. It wasn't like being conscripted. 
and mm. they put me they put me through a pretty tough I was the youngest man on the ship for for the for the first year but with basic training it's all done they really knocked you know lots of spots off us and the very first I got to the ship the SAS Transvaal and the very first trip we made it was an emergency trip down to the ice Prince Edward Island Marion Island oh yes yeah and yeah. I mean here's this guy who's I mean in the protected environment suddenly going ashore on Marion Island and and the skipper the the coxswain of the boat carrying a hand grenade with the pin drawn in his right hand because of the problem with killer whales and there had been problems whereas I, I suppose that's one way to sort out a killer whale well this is where you drop that thing over over and it makes a big bang and yeah. the killer whales are gone but our orcas were quite aggressive down there compared to the orcas that you get in the Pacific Northwest you know mm-hmm. in theory they're more peace loving you know anyhow that's um, going to places this is why i read and i looked at the maps and i studied and i uh, what where i could go and what i'm going to do and i applied for a job uh, with harry selby in the okavango swamps he'd been in kenya before and he was very kind he read back and let he said my you know very kind of you to talk to me but he says i suggest you finish your schooling first <laughs> well of course you said you yeah, you you mentioned earlier you were 14 or something when you went okay i've done enough of the school thing i'd like to go and work there yeah. Yeah, well, it was you know my dad worked on the railways, so I, he got a free ticket for me once a year, and he tell me where do you want to go with your free ticket this time. So I said uh, all the school, I mean, Barrett Brothers had lots of boys from Madagascar, the Congo, from Tanganyika, as it was called in those days, the two Rhodesias, and they and my friends who came from there would come and spend their short holidays with me, and I would go and spend the long holidays with them, and we'd go by train three days to get to the Copper Belt. Wow, there there must have been some adventures there, but uh, I'm not sure we're going to get into those adventures. Yeah. So you were you were now in the navy. So so how did we transition from the navy into a war correspondent? Because as I said, initially my mind boggles. I'm like, I, you know, I don't want to go and visit a war. No way do I. No, you know, I, nor did I. It's all accidental. But I'll come to that. Oh, okay. So I get discharged after three years from the navy, and I hitchhike up Africa. No, first thing. Boy, here I'm off to Mombasa, down up to down into the Rift Valley, new world, a new culture. Uh, it was still British. Tanganyika had hadn't been called. It was only became Tanzania later, and then Kenya. And I could and I wandered around. I met people, and I eventually ended up at Mombasa docks. So I said I, I wandered along and I saw a, a Swedish, uh, a Norwegian ship. And the guy waved to me, hi, and uh, I said, I signed with I made sign language. We're too far away. I said, can I come up? He said, sure, come up. So I went up and I said, listen, um, uh, you think you can give me a lift to your next port? He said, well, we're going to Montreal. That's on the other side of the world. So I said, hell, I said that would be a hell of a nice place to go. He said, well, do you want to come? I said, I said, yes, I've been in the navy. I can, you know, I, I work my passage. He said, you're on. So I went to I went to Montreal and and there I worked in Canada for six months. I worked as a, a lumberjack in tobacco, and yeah. uh, 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 and in mining. You know, I, I went to the mine and the guy said to me, Goldman. He said to me, Have you got any experience? I said, Oh, what do you mean? He said, Have you got any tickets? And I had been in the with mining boys and I knew that you had to have tickets. You had to have all sorts of coloured tickets. Yeah, so you got your said, blasting ticket. So I, and... so I said to him, well, 
where do I come from? I come from South Africa. The guy said, yes. I said, how many tickets? I said, I've got all of them. <laughs> well, of course, I'm, this is a load of rubbish. They gave me the job anyway. And <laughs> 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 so then from there I went to London and I got off the ship in Southampton. I got myself a place in, in Putney. I looked for a job. I got it and I started my studies that week at the Baltic Exchange. And that ended up with me becoming a fellow of the Institute of Chartered Shipbrokers, one of the most august professional qualifications you can get in the city. So from somebody who didn't like school and learning, you picked... Because I was interested, interested in the subject. And the, ah. what, is, what is curious here is that I, I got a bad matric, but with when I passed my fellowship, I said I asked them eventually, how did I do? Can you give me, where did I stand? She said, we, they don't give results. She said, but we can tell you that you're in the top five of the overseas students. Sure. And uh, now I'm stuck with a very fine qualification. I've been working in the day in shipping because shipping, I'd been in the Navy. And I came back to South Africa and I started to work and I worked, worked for a while, did a lot, started writing. And at a certain point, I was getting published all over the place. And I went back to London, worked, I set up, interestingly here, I set up Steiner Line, the ferry service between Britain and France. Goodness, okay. I got to London the second time, and I'd had a letter of introduction to uh, Clarkson's, the chairman of Clarkson's, uh, and a Tiny um, Musgrave, who played tennis for South Africa, was his old buddy from the war. And, and I had a, an invite to go and see the, the chairman, uh, Sir Alexander Glenn, on a Monday morning. And I went in to this fine mahogany panel thing, a chamber with all the directors were telling, talking about what they did over the weekend. And he came over and introduced himself, a nice guy, and he put his hand in my shoulder. He said, how would you like to run your own shipping line? I was 27 years old then. Wow, okay. Obviously, I must have done quite well in South Africa. Yeah. Awesome. So the, the average Englishman would say, well, I've never done that before. But I said, well, what, what is it? He said, well, we, got, we want to start a fellow called uh, Sten, uh, Sten Olsen is starting a shipping ferry, daily ferry service between Tilbury and Calais. It's called the Londoner. How would you like to take that over? And I said, I'm on. He says, you've got four months. And I was able to hire my own staff. I, and I, what I did was I hired colonials because the British went on strike all the time. So I got Canadians, South Africans, New Zealanders. I got a, a cop from Fiji. They're all colonials. And they're could, all prepared to work. Because they'd all studied. This is the thing. In London, you could go. You did your... You, you qualified in your home countries and you went to London to do your two years for additional background. All these guys had arrived in London to do their two years and they, they were very happy to work for 10 hours a day. I was going to pay them a good wage. And in four months, we got the Londoner on, on, online. We got it going between Tilbury and Calais. It is an incredible adventure. That's, that's, it's amazing, and, and we, need to, we need to still get on to how you became a war correspondent. Uh, that comes next. <laughs> in the meantime, he says, uh, this is what's involved. My special guest is L.J. Fenter. Uh, we're talking about his book, Taka Taka Bomb Bomb, and we'll be back in just a bit and catch up 
where we left off. Hey, like what you're hearing? Share the podcast with your family and friends and spread the word. This is what's involved. And we're back with my guest, LJ Fenter. Uh, the book is Tucker Tucker Bomb Bomb. Brilliant book. I, I, to me, yeah, I mean, it truly is. You know, the Sapphire is, is a South African war correspondent story. And what a story it is with so many little stories. Now, Al, just before we went to the break, um, we, we were telling and you just now opened up this ferry between uh, Calais and... and uh, well, well Stina Line today is one of the biggest ferry lines in the world. Yeah. And uh, I, did the, I set the, the, the British one up to begin with. But after four months, I'm successful, they said to me, now, take it easy, Al, thank you very much. Go to the, go to the travel office, write yourself a ticket to anywhere in the world you want. You've got a month's holiday. Wow. So, like an idiot... I could have gone to I could have gone to Hawaii or who knows where, but I went to I went to Morocco, and uh, well, it wasn't very pleasant. But never mind. Uh, and then that kept that way for a few for a few months, and I and I was not doing anything. And the and the managing director Ken Holmes, a nice guy, he, he said to me after two months, he said, "Oh, he said, go home and write. And when you, you know you like to write, don't you?" I said, "Yes." He said, "Well, go home and write." And, and we'll get this next project going. And then it never did. And after three months, I thought, no, man, I want to work. So I wrote to three British companies that had businesses in Nigeria. I'd come up the coast on a second Trans-Africa overland trip, four months. And I loved Nigeria. Five years after independence, it was working very well. And I wrote to those three companies and I said, I'd like a job. This is my background. I'm a, I'm a fellow of the Institute of Charlotte Showbrokers. And all three came back and offered me a job. So I took the biggest, John Holt. And I, As one does. I mean, you, you should do that. And, I, and I, I flew to Nigeria two days after the army mutiny had taken over the country. So suddenly I'm in a totally different country because there's been a lot of killings. Uh, the, the, some of the top leaders had been assassinated, some of them in their beds. And, and I'm now in what was a wonderfully peaceable country, thrust into a situation that was tenuous. It's not very nice at all. And for six months, I wandered around Nigeria doing my job and, and learning and, and getting to know what was going on because um, that was what I was employed to do. But I came back to the office after having travelled on the, the, third, the third or fourth month. I came back to the office and I said, you know, Things are not good. There's going to be another revolution. And the, and the managing director looked at me and he said, for God's sakes, he says, get on with your job and ignore the politics. So I said, yeah, but, you know, this is a reality. And so then what I see, he said, you're talking rubbish. A British guy, very, very pompous uh, individual. And I then read, a little, I read an article for Newscheck. You remember the old Newscheck? Well, it's a, the biggest news magazine in its day in South Africa. and it, uh, I actually don't. But anyway, the thing hmm. is that I was also writing for UBI and, and uh, uh, various ABC News and so on. It was radio in those days. And I predicted another army mutiny. And I, they published a, a, a full-scale cover story on my time in Nigeria, ending off saying, Al Fenter says there's going to be another army mutiny. And I did the same for Heiskenu at the Afrikaans. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I was really good in Afrikaans, but so they translated. So they published both of them. Two weeks later, there was a second army mutiny. And wow. I could do no wrong after that because I was looked upon as a sort of, you know, but it was so damn obvious. And the, and the strange thing about it is neither the British or the American intelligence, they were caught with their pants down because they didn't leave their offices. They didn't wander around the countryside. They didn't talk to people in faraway places where it was all happening. So I was, that is how I became a war correspondent because with the Second Army Mutiny, I was thrust right into it. The planning for that Second Army Mutiny had taken place 50 yards from my office at Ikeja Airport. The mutineers were all there. Good gracious. Now, and then we're getting now to, to the book, Al, and, and, and what a great book, I've got to tell you. But the title, Taka Taka Bom Bom, I've been in the military um, in South Africa when it was compulsory, so I made up my own kind of what that means to me. Yes. Um, I wonder if I'm right. So tell me about that title. Where does that come from? Well, as a little boy, my father was in the railways in World War II, and he he'd achieved quite a lot because they made him responsible for handling the convoys backwards and forwards to Europe, Algoa Bay, PE. Mm-hmm. So he had been in the First World War. This kind of dates me, doesn't it? Just a little, uh, but okay. And, and he tell, he would amuse me with the word taka-taka-bom-bom. And, you know, when he put me to bed and I'd laugh and he'd giggle. And uh, and he he told me years later that he had fought in Tanganyika against the Germans from Leto Forbeck. South Africans had 10... 20,000 troops up in Tanganyika in the First World War, and he was one of them. Wow. And he was caught in an ambush in the north somewhere, and the Germans had black safari, very fine African troops, Swahili troops, that they called Askaris. Oh, uh, yeah. And the, and the Swahili people referred to the Maxim machine gun as a taka taka bomb That's... That's kind of where I was going. I was going with, with it's the sound of automatic yeah, heavy yeah. weapons fire. Yeah. Um, and when I first said that to, to some of the people, they were like, <laughs> okay. But and when you hear something like that, you can see exactly where that taka taka bomb bomb comes yeah, from. Yeah. So it started off as, as a joke and then you found out um, more and more about it. But where did you go then from, from that first... Um, article and, and sort of... Okay, so I then, uh, after, because I was such an obnoxious uh, individual, according to the British guy, who was saying <laughs> warning about the revolution, they, they said I planned to leave the country. And uh, I then uh, didn't tell them, uh, but they fired me. But I had it all planned because I was going to go back overland through Angola, which was then at war. Mm. And I... There's various things that come out in the book that are too lengthy to talk about how I, uh, how I had infiltrated an area near uh, the Russian uh, radio station in West Africa. Um, Travelled down and wrote to the Portuguese after I'd left to a, a man, a colonel that I knew, and I said, I'd like to go and cover your war in Angola. And I knew him quite well in London. And he said, send me your passport. 
Wow. But now in, in those days, because I'm trying to get my head around this, because you've literally traveled to wars all over the world. Yeah. In days gone by, a war correspondent was, was not seen in a negative light. It wasn't as though you were walking into a war zone with a big cross on your forehead, was it? No, because I'm the, I'm the biggest coward you know. When the <laughs> shooting starts, I, keep my, I get my head down. Uh, it, war correspondent is, is a sort of a considered risk factor. Uh, not, not, uh, one of the British correspondents, I was interviewed the other day in uh, good, uh, Great Britain News, and he said to me, what makes you become a war correspondent? And I said to him, well, it's better than working. <laughs> okay. And I also could get into these wars in those days. You'd go in, I'd, you know, in Lebanon, I'd arrive and I'd go down to Nakura, which was a UN base. And I knew the commander and um, I went in there so many times that when I, towards the end, I'd arrive and he said, hello, Al. He said, uh, how long are you here for? I said, I don't know. He said, anyway, you're sleeping over there. And then I'd ask, he's asked to be taken to one of the units up there and then and also move around. I, I actually um, spent a lot of my formative years in the Middle East. Uh, I went into the invasion of Beirut with Arik Sharon's force. I spent a lot of time with the Israelis. Uh, I, was, uh, I, I spent a week off the shores with a gunboat patrolling for um, infiltrators. Um, and that's, that was my formative years. And then in the 10-year civil war, I was in and out of there for 10 years. So, but always with the Christian forces, whereas the media tended to go with the Muslim forces. Mm. So I was on the other side of the green line. And uh, that was really the most intense spirit of warfare that I've ever had, although I had been covering, and it was still covering, the Portuguese wars, Angola, Mozambique and Portuguese Guinea, uh, which they, they trusted me by the first time, after the first time, and they allowed me to go in, whereas they didn't really like the media. But mm. I was giving them good publicity in the sense that I, was, I wasn't kind to them, but their war was being featured in, in photographs, and eventually I started with films. And so it progresses. And I, and I moved from there uh, to lots of wars all over Africa, West Africa, El Salvador, uh, parts of, other parts of the Middle East and so on. It's fascinating. You did spend some time, though, in today it's Zimbabwe, what was then Rhodesia. Yes. And there's a couple of stories there. So when we come back, I'd like to dive into that because I have some connection to that as well. This is what's involved. My special guest is Al Fenter, uh, author of uh, a book, Taka Taka Bom Bom, uh, a South African war correspondence story. More with Al when we come back. This is what's involved. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. More next. And we're back. What's involved today is my special guest is uh, Al Fenter, author of Taka Taka Bom Bom. Just before the break, I mentioned what is now Zimbabwe, in those days, Rhodesia. You spent a fair amount of time there as well with uh, Ian Smith's government? Yes, a lot of time. with the. They uh, actually, having been in the Middle East, they sort of took me under their wing because they were prepared, which is not a good thing in, term, in terms of the uh, 
the, the political sentiment at the time because most of the media was against him. Yeah. Uh, it is obvious, as plain as day, if, you know, that this tiny community with a white population, the same size as the city of Bournemouth in England, could not survive. And you couldn't tell the Rhodesians, you know, listen, you're fighting a losing cause. Uh, yeah. So, but I, they would allow me to go on ops with them. And I went with the uh, Rhodesian Light Infantry and the Rhodesian African Rifles. And that was, to me, a hell of a war. Uh, well, that's what I wanted to get into because the RLI, or the, the Light Infantry, were, were legendary. Yes. In, were. in terms of what their capabilities were. Uh, the Salut Scouts. Yes. Um, also absolute legends. And, and you know, they, they were the guys that I think... Uh, sort of started that, that counterinsurgency, guerrilla warfare type stuff. But you've got some interesting stories there. Just pick, pick one to share with us. I'm not going to go, because I don't want to spoil the book, because there's some great stories in the book, along with great photos of you in, in various places. But uh, this is closer to home, and I think people can relate to that. Well, uh, you'd move around the country, mainly in uh, Centenary, Centenary area, opposite, and... and None of the roads were, car, were paved in those days. So that one was a perpetual problem. You took your chances. And uh, I was with a unit, and we went into a, a fairly remote area, into a military base, and um, I was with a, a pal of mine, uh, Mike, Michael Knight of the Times of London, and um, we ended up sleeping the night there, and the next morning... Uh, about four o'clock in the morning, we heard this huge explosion. And nobody moved. We waited for sunrise. And what had happened was that the insurgents had obviously seen these two strange white guys in civvy clothes with a military unit going into the camp, and they were going to give us a welcome when we left. And they laid a landmine, but somehow or another they blew themselves up with a landmine. And right. we, we had a huge spray of intestines across the thorn trees. You'd be astonished how much intestines we have, each of us. Uh, it's not a picture I'd like in my head, but <laughs> sadly now I have one. <laughs> well, you know, this is the thing. I suppose I've been extraordinarily lucky because I've been blown up twice. Uh, I was actually going to say to you, in all of these years, have you been blown up? Yeah. So twice. Yeah, I've been shot at continually. And, and uh, I, I it, when you're in... Some of these countries where the troops aren't that well trained, if they're aiming at you, you feel quite comfortable. Yeah. When you're standing next to the guy they're aiming. <laughs> you... <laughs> yeah, in the old days, that used to be called, what's it? Uh, spray and pray. You yeah, just, yeah, just pull yeah. the trigger and hope you're going to hit something. So I got uh, more seriously blown up when I was on the back of a, a, a rattle, standing on the turret of a rattle uh, in one of the ops, way north, Op Daisy, I think it was, yeah. Yeah, and then I uh, also got uh, blown up, partly through my own stupidity in op in Kormato, when uh, the South Africans hit a major uh, Angolan base. In, they thought it was Swapo, and it wasn't. It was very special forces Angolan base, and uh, our unit. I, I went in. Uh, I was dropped in with the Parabat unit, Charlie Company, uh, with Pumas, and hundred men. We took seven percent casualties, two killed and five wounded, and I was one of the guys because I blew my, you know, I got blown up there. Uh, but those, the, those sort of things you're best forgotten. They, they happen, you survive, you move on. Now, I need to ask you about this as well, Al, because, I mean, these days 
you hear a lot about it in my day. It was, it was never really spoken about. And this is PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome. Yes. Um, you've been in wars repeatedly. Has, and, and have you suffered from PTSD? Do you suffer from it? I'll come to that. Why I'm, why I'm starting from scratch is because PTSD is used far too often these days for simple things, which is not. Mm. Uh, people get laid off for PTSD, which is rubbish. Uh, PTSD is a very real affliction, and I seem to have, I seem to have come through it very well because I've only, only had it once about 10 years ago. Uh, I'm living in London, and I suddenly uh, have this enormous enveloped by a fear and a dread which I can't explain to you. But I was going out with an American woman at the time and uh, it hit me at three o'clock in the morning and I was, and it is a very severe mental thing that I, 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 I was absolutely terrified and I phoned her and she, she, I told her, listen, I'm having a problem, you've got to talk to me. And she talked to me till dawn. Mm-hmm. And it happened, it stayed like that for about eight or nine days. Every night I would phone her and she'd talk to me. And that is the basis of, that is PTSD. That's the real. Mm, that's, the real that's the real McCoy, absolutely. And I've, since then, fairly recently, I've had one or two days like that. Uh, and I sort of, you know, I, I can handle it now. But it's a, it's a state of mind that you've got no control over. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's horrific it's when it happens to you. Fight or flight or... And sometimes it's just absolute... Because the night is very dark and you are very alone. I'm not married. Yeah. Uh, I've got a wonderful woman who's a former career diplomat now. But uh, she, you know, we, we're together most of the time. But she has her place, I have mine. And uh, if I need to, I'll call her in the morning, in the night. But I've never had to do that yet. Uh, and I don't think, uh, you know, I sort of get along. Yeah. Book is, is, is fantastic, okay? And I've tried my best to do this interview without diving into it too much because you have to read it. Even if you go, oh, war stories. No, there's a lot of human stories in there and a lot of human interaction and humanity. It's well worth reading. When we come back, we're going to wrap up uh, with Al and... Uh, just uh, find out where you can get the book from, etc., etc. This is What's Involved back in just a bit. You're listening to What's Involved with David Watts. Have you been to our website? Check it out, www.whatsinvolved.com. And while you're there, click on the coffee mug icon and buy David a cup of coffee. He'll love it. And we're back wrapping it up with my special guest, Al Fenter, author of Taka Taka Bom Bom. Uh, it's all about a South African war correspondent story. And like I said in the beginning, I didn't even know we had war correspondents uh, of our very own in South Africa, but, uh, but we do. Um, I was, and I'm almost ashamed now that I've read this book, Al, to, to admit to you that I had no idea that you were or are such a prolific author. You've published around 60 books. Yes, but you know, this comes from the work that I do as a foreign correspondent because I've been working on and off for James. I didn't work, I wasn't employed with him. But for 40 years, I've been going into various wars. Like I'm now, as you said, as you uh, said, I'm now into, well into my mid-80s and I've just come back two weeks ago from covering the war in the Central African Republic. 
I was there. But uh, it's still that, I'm sorry, but that is still mind-blowing, that you're, you're still out there well, and you're still working. It, it, it's easy. Uh, I'm working, I worked at this time with a NATO commando force in the CAR. Uh, they treated me like a grand old man. And then last year, October, I was in the war in Mali, and uh, which is a pretty grim war, and the West is not winning it. The 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 Islamic forces are, are powerfully motivated. Uh, they're damn good. Let's put it that way. And uh, that was an insight. So I, I've got uh, this is another book I'm finishing off now called Africa in the Line of Fire, but it's going to be published overseas. So we're we not getting it here. Uh, or, or will it come I, here? I'm not sure because I'm a, I'm a little bit critical. Ah. No, it's because you touched on something interesting there, and I'd love, I'd love to, to, to get your, your impression there. Um, in terms of uh, the, the, the Islamic factions and the war, um, I believe it's a lot closer than we as South Africa would like to give it credit for. And we're all, we all sitting back in our laurels going, yeah, it's okay, it happens out there. It's the Yanks. They deserve it. Um, I don't think that's entirely true. Uh, You're spot on because uh, the Mozambique situation, uh, in spite of what Maputo says, it's out of hand. Those those insurgents, those guerrillas in northern Mozambique are absolutely brilliant for two reasons. They are local people. They know their own backyard. They are Muslim. The entire community in northern Mozambique is Muslim. So the Russians went in there three or four years ago, Wagner Group, they arrived with these big, heavy 124, 124 Antonov transport planes with their armoured fighting vehicles and their helicopters, uh, MI-17s and uh, gunships and radio equipment and drones and the lot, and they went into the north. Boy, they were going to knock these guys for a loop. Uh, They'd been promised gas oil concessions by the Maputo government. Mm. They lasted four months because they ignored the basic rule. Your intelligence comes from the local people, and they were not local people. And secondly, they were pretty aggressive and nasty toward the local people. Yeah. Now, it, 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 it does concern me. So there's another, there's another book. It might not be published here. Um, in, terms of, um, in terms of where we can get Tucker Tucker Bomb Bomb, that is available at all good bookstores, yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, it's out now. And, uh, okay. Uh, they, I've actually flown out from England to launch it uh, at, at various exclusive book outlets, uh, Johannesburg, Pretoria, Cape Town. Okay. And, um, so I, I snuck in under the wire here and I got to have a personal chat with you. I like that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to me, uh, being a, I don't like the word walker on it personally because I'm just – an ordinary guy doing what I think I do best. Hmm. And uh, I, 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 I enjoy getting back three weeks ago to that war in the Central African Republic. But I, I must tell you, it's quite tough because they wouldn't let me go anywhere. If I, I had to go and get, uh, I asked them when I arrived, I wanted to go into town. So the commander said to me, really? I said, yes. I said, you know, I'm here, I'm in Bangui. South Africans fought a very big battle in Bangui not long ago, and they lost a lot of guys. He says, well, let me think about it. See, the next morning he had four armoured infantry fighting vehicles there with a bodyguard of 12 men, and uh, they took me into town to have tea. 
So <laughs> having been told, having been told that uh, you just do what we say, and as a matter of fact, at one stage, we're now going back to 2019, the first time I went there, uh, we were hassled by a, a group of rebels and they just had to ring, form a ring around. But as in Mali, they also where they also put a heavy guard around me all the time, uh, I said to them, you're defeating the object of exercise. I'm the only civilian dressed here amongst a bunch of paratroopers and, and, and yeah. commandos who are in combat gear. And you eventually, it's not going to take these guys very long to realize that this guy must be of some value, so he should, he should be our target. So yeah. it's counterproductive. But anyway, I didn't argue. You know, what can you say? Uh, you, if you're going into a, 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 a dangerous situation with these guys, you can't ignore their demands. Yeah. I, yeah, I just, I, I, I totally agree with you because immediately you're going to get marked as a high-value target and you're, yeah. you're part of some clandestine organization. Meantime, you're there as because a, a reporter, essentially. The, you, you mentioned the Islamic groups. They yeah. are so well organized. Their intelligence is absolutely spot on. Um, I wanted to go overland out of Mali to Dakar. And when I told the commander, he looked at me and he looked away and he looked at me again. He says, are you mad? <laughs> so, <laughs> He says, you're going to be the only white man on that road. Yeah. How long do you think it's good for them to find out? Yeah, which is, it's understandable. It's kind of sad, though. Um, the other sad part is I'll, it wraps up our, our chat for now. Before I let you go, though, one last question. I mean, this, this just reading the book and talking to you, I mean, this is a life well lived. Uh, but what is next for Alfenta? I'll be quite honest, I don't know. Uh, I'm supposed to go to northern Mozambique to finish um, the book that I'm African in the line of fire, but I don't think so. I, I actually think I've done my last war. At, at 84, uh, one of the things you lose is your balance. And also, you're, you're having been blown up, I've lost the use of my left ear, and your balance of your body comes from your ears. Yeah. And uh, so I am not as sharp as I was, and I've got to accept that. Uh, I wanted to go to, I wanted to, go to um, Ukraine, but Lynn, my partner, has a hysterectomy every time I mention that. And, and that's that, you know, so she, she won't let me go. Yeah, I think Ukraine's a bit, a bit messy. So, so retirement, you don't strike me as somebody who's no, going to retire and, and sit next to the fire, and not at all. I've got, a, I've got another two books or three books that I want to do, and, and, and one of them involves a relative from the Boer War who actually ended up killing a lot of British troops, uh, officers, senior officers, uh, she was. She escaped from a concentration camp. I think. Uh, I think in and around South Africa, there's still a lot of stories to be told. Oh yes. Oh yes. Wonderful stuff. Well, there we go. It wraps it up with uh, my special guest, uh, Alfenta. The book is Tucker Tucker Bom Bom, the South African War Correspondent Story. Get it now. As I've said to you before, certain books you need to get in the paperback or hardcover edition, purely because. Kindle just doesn't do it justice. This is one such book. Um, there's some amazing photos in there. The stories are great. Um, it's available in most good bookstores. Uh, it is it's obviously available online as well. So uh, go out and get it. I'll thank you so much for taking the time and having a chat to us. Dave, I, it's my pleasure. And I appreciate your, you know, your approach and uh, your... It's an gift. absolute pleasure. So there we go, wrapping it up. To each and every one of you, look after yourselves. Take care.
and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to What's Involved. We hope this episode inspires you to find your passion and live your dream. Don't forget to rate, review, and share the podcast. And to see what's happening, what's going on, and what's coming, follow What's Involved on Facebook and Twitter at What's Involved. Thanks again for listening.